0: You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, I'm Jim Del Rosso and we have another episode of Derms and Conditions. Um, I know it's your favorite podcast in dermatology. And I'm very pleased today to introduce someone that I've known for some time. I wish I could hang around with them more and, and spend more time with them, but anytime I'm around them, I, I always enjoy them and, and always learn a lot when he's sharing information. And that's Dr. Andy Blawell from Portland, Oregon. Uh, Andy is an investigator at Oregon Medical Research Center in Portland, and he recently sold this research center. He's the former president and owner. Uh, he has been doing clinical research since he was uh, at University of Michigan with Chuck Ellis in dermatology and made that pretty much his, his entire career. And he's done about 200, around 200 clinical trials on biologic agents in Janus kinase inhibitors. And I know he's done other clinical research. So he knows the science side and he knows uh, the, the clinical side of it because he's directly in touch with the clinical practice of medicine. He's not just at a bench somewhere uh, and doesn't understand the application. So Andy, long introduction because there's a lot to say about you, but thanks for being with us today.
1: All right. Thank you, Jim. I'm happy to be here.
0: So why don't we just get right into it? You know, as well as the rest of us, how challenging it is for clinicians in the trenches, you know, that are not, you know, in there doing all the, the research and, and doing clinical trials and at a lot of the, the meetings where people are sitting around the table, you know, how how difficult it is. And they're in busy, busy in private practice, whatever the case may be, or even in academic practice. But you know, how do they learn? How do you recommend they learn what they really need to know in clinical practice? We'll start by saying you have somebody come in with, you know, plaque psoriasis that's pretty diffuse, and whether or not they have psoriatic arthritis, and, you know, how do they go about selecting what to use for a patient?
1: Well, Jim, it's a really a great question because, as you know, in in, uh, in psoriasis, we've had this incredible explosion. Um, you know, not only an evolution of the drugs that we have available, but a, really a revolution. I call it a revolution in what has happened in the last twenty years, and most of that has been in systemic therapy for more severe disease. Um, but now we're even seeing that in topical therapy. And so when I'm speaking in front of dermatologists, um, especially private practitioners who are busy and can't really, you know, stay up to date so well in all of this explosion of new material, I try to get in, you know, to their minds. I try to simplify it. I try to teach some basics um, to try to digest all of this information that's coming out in the last 20 years. So for, let's start with biologics. So... For biologics for psoriasis, we have 11, 11, count them, <laughs> a lot now available, <laughs> you know, and do, do uh, you know, and, and dermatologists in practice don't want to know all 11. They don't want to know all the details, right? So, um, so one simple basic thing is to break them into three categories. And I think that's useful. And that's the three main mechanisms of action of the 11. So you have the original TNF blockers, which everybody knows, um, the Embrels, the Humiras. Um, and then you have IL-17 blockers. And there it's, you have uh, TALTS and COSENTICS and, and SLEEC. And then on the other end, you have IL-23 blockers. Um, you know, Stellar was the first one of that type, but then we have now the selective IL-23 blockers um, with, um, with Trimphia, Skyrizi, and Illumia. And so um, basically, I, I suggest that every dermatologist have their favorite in each class because there'll be times you, you'll want to use a TNF blocker, times you'll want to use an IL-17 blocker, and times you'll want to use an IL-23 blocker.
0: So, so, Andy, you, know, you, you have these three categories. Um, uh, are there ever times when you feel there's, there is a, a significant difference between one versus the other, other than maybe frequency of injection, some of the practical aspects of it, where it makes a difference therapeutically, even though people are trying to operate with one from a class?
1: Yeah, I think everybody should know kind of the basic pros and cons of each of the three classes and kind of know that they're not all the same and that you do see differences in safety and efficacy in those three classes. And so if we just start with the TNFs, um, they're not as good. They're not as efficacious, really, as the newer ones. And so I really tell dermatologists to try to move away from TNF blockers, because in terms of skin disease, um, we see much better um, effects um, with the IL-17 and the IL-23 blockers, and not only more efficacy, but those drugs, those two latter classes are safer, I think much safer, than TNF blockers. So that's just one kind of general rule of thumb is try not to use TNF blockers anymore, uh, kind of move away from them, both from efficacy and safety, and then go to the 17s and 23s. And so um, that's kind of some general things.
0: You would say that's true, even though, you know, you keep hearing, oh, they're still high on the list in the guidelines for psoriatic arthritis. When I hear guidelines, I know they're already outdated by the time they get published, right? Unless they're, you know, printed from a society and they're they're very current or something. Um, Is that true even for psoriatic arthritis?
1: Yeah, I think it is, Jim, because um, if you look at the the data in psoriatic arthritis for IL-17 blockers, um, you know, namely uh, TALTS and Cosentix, and both of those drugs are approved for PSA. Tho- those drugs are just as good as, um, for example, Humira and the TNF blockers in terms of joint disease. And yet they offer better skin disease improvement and better safety. So if they're just as good for the joints, and you know, in totality, you have you know better skin response and, and a safer drug. Then I don't see a reason, even in PSA, to use them. I, I would go to an IL-17 blocker for a PSA patient.
0: So um, is that true about st- stopping the progression of joint disease? The anti the anti IL-17s also stop the progression of of the of the joint disease. Correct? We have that data.
1: It is. So we don't see that with the 23 blockers. So that's one difference um, in joint responses to 17 versus 23. So if it's a PSA patient, I prefer IL-17 blockade. Um, That that would be an example over 23, whereas I really like the 23. But some of the
0: 23s are approved, right? Some of the 23s are approved for psoriatic arthritis, correct? They are. You still feel the anti-IL-17s are better? against the joints.
1: Right, so if you, um, if you look at the two major IL-23 blockers, Tremphi and Sky-Rizzi, um, they're both approved for PSA. They've got decent data. Um, you know, it's, it's, not, um, it's, it's not quite in the range as TNF blockers and IL-17 blockers, and they have not been shown to block radiographic progression of disease. So, so it's really my preference for an IL-17 blocker in PSA.
0: Okay. So let's move on to some of the other aspects that people ask about is the whole major cardiovascular event arena. And do, do all of these agents actually have an impact on helping patients in terms of cardiac comorbidities or, or any do any stand out to you as being of major importance there?
1: Yeah. So this topic is just huge, right? So since 2006, Um, So Joel Gelfand, our our friend at University of Pennsylvania, published a major paper on heart disease and psoriasis in 2006. And what we've seen in the last 15, 18 years or so is this huge number of papers on heart disease and psoriasis. And so we know, for example, that that it is a risk factor by itself that it's not just the associated diabetes or obesity or hypertension um, that psoriasis itself because it's pro inflammatory disease, what you see is spilling over of that inflammation into the blood basically getting getting into the coronary artery so and it's really interesting to me that the more the more psoriasis you see, the worse the heart disease so um, if you have a little bit of disease, let's say in the, you know, the BSA, 10, 5%, um, you have a little bit of a heart disease signal. But you go to 10, you go to 15, you see an increasing, almost a linear increase in risk of heart attack and stroke as you go up in BSA. So I like to kind of draw, you know, for patients uh, a simple line graph, a linear graph, kind of showing that the more skin disease they have, The more risk of heart disease, and it's it's really a a topic that I bring up at the beginning, at the beginning of every every first visit. I talk about two comorbidities always: uh, psoriatic arthritis and heart disease. And there's so many comorbidities to talk about, but when I, you know, when I talk into private practitioners, they don't have time to go through diabetes, hypertension, everything else, lipids. But I think those two. Should be at the front of every conversation with the psoriatic, and they're really and because they affect not only the choice of the drug, as we talked about, if they have PSA, right, but the heart disease that can kill them. So it gives some reason really to clear their psoriasis. Can you give
0: us some specifics on what type of heart disease? I thought I was at, you know. I'm getting a little older, so sometimes my memory fails me. I th- remember I was at a presentation. I think you were there. Somebody was showing like plaque uh, not forming based on one of the one of the inhibitors, one of the inhibiting agents, or it actually influences plaque formation in vessels. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. So it's atherosclerosis is the main thing, you know, that patients get. So whether it's, you know, in the heart or or the, the neck, you know, it's it's mainly what we see is heart attack and stroke. Um, and so recently there's been a new technique that's applied called angio CT which is really cool. So you inject dye um, and you don't have to do it like a typical angiograph. You just put it into the vein. It just goes in the circulation. And then you do a CT. And the the dye running through the coronaries, you can visualize the coronary arteries by CT scan. And you can actually quantify the, the size of the lumens and the, the degree of atherosclerosis um, by this method. It's really cool. And so what we've seen in, um, with the biologics is that the IL-17 class um, has the greatest impact and decreasing atherosclerosis at one year of therapy. And then we also see it with TNF blockers and with 23 blockers as well. So really cool stuff.
0: It is an interesting, you know, you know, other specialties being away from it, being in dermatology. The last time I had it, the last time I had a stress test was recent, but years ago when I first came to Vegas and that was 1997, I had the typical stress test where you're on the treadmill. I was surprised I went as long as I did because I wasn't, <laughs> never been a big exercise, cardiac exercise guy. You can probably tell, but then I just had one recently and I got all geared up, you know, i I'm thinking, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to go. I had dressed for being able to walk on a treadmill. They didn't do it on a treadmill. Hmm. I laid down, they injected something, and I went into a PET scanner. Hmm. It, it just was mind boggling to me. I'm like, and I said, it, how? how how are you know? He says that that what we inject simulates exercise, increases your heart rate, etc. He says there's a lot of people nowadays that are older, they can't get on a treadmill. Hmm. Um, and so it's just kind of, it's amazing the advances in other fields. And we find out about it when we have disease states where we have to address these things with patients. So that that's interesting. What other factors, at least with biologics, go into selection of therapy with psoriasis, and then maybe we can transcend over into atopic dermatitis or even hidradenitis or separativa, sure. whatever you wanna get into.
1: Yeah, so just a few more things on psoriasis. So, um, you know, the, the pillars of any kind of choice for me are efficacy, safety, convenience. And the first two are the dominant ones. So, you know, what are the most efficacious drugs? What are the safest drugs? And then what are the, you know, is it convenient? Is it every two weeks? Is it every three months or whatever? And for me, if you take in totality, those three pillars and a patient with no psoriatic arthritis, just say your typical kind of moderate to severe plaque patient needs a biologic. For me, the 23 blockers are really coming, you know, to quote unquote, the best class because they have all three hitting on all cylinders. They really do. They have, they you know, SkyRizzy and Tremphia. they they have high effic- efficacy rates, um, you know, nine out of 10 patients do well in those two drugs. Um, and then they're super safe. IL-23 blockers really don't have, I think, any side effects. And people talk about o as the safe. I said, no, the IL-23 blockers are safer than O-Tesla. I mean, they don't do anything. Um, you know, they don't cause any problems. And then they're only used every two to three months. Well,
0: you, you, can get in, you can get injection site reactions and things like that. You're talking about systemic side effects?
1: Yeah, injection site reactions, but usually those are, are trivial. But I'm talking about, you know cancer infections, anything bad, it's uh, basically nothing going on, nothing with the blood tests. So I just- so, uh, so do you
0: think, because a lot of this all started with TNFs and then the recycled dogma of how things appear in package inserts and over and over again, do you think it really is necessary to be checking for something like tuberculosis, for example, in anti-IL-23s and anti il things? Because I think as we get more and more data, we find out that a lot of these things that are written in hard print really may not be necessary. What's your opinion on that?
1: So for years, Jim, for years, I've been getting on the podium and saying the FDA rules there are ridiculous. And so I'm not shy about criticizing the FDA product inserts at all. And and it's not based on science. And so you, you need to check for TB for, for TNF blockers and for Stellara. And Stellara, because it blocks IL-12 and 23, and 12 can be related to TB. But selective IL-23 blockers and IL-17s have no role, zero role in TB pathogenesis. There's no cases really to speak of. And so there you, I don't recommend checking for TB, even though it's really against the label, so. yeah, yeah.
0: But that From what I've read, and I'm not as, as knowledgeable or as close to it as you are, that's what I've what I've come up with. I still do it, you know. You, you're kind of forced to do it, but um, I I felt the same way. What about some of these other things we've heard about? If the patient has pre-existing heart failure or a family member with a neurologic disease like multiple sclerosis, and what? what Separate the different agents in that regard for me?
1: Yeah, there's a few special cases where you don't want to use particular drugs in particular types of patients. So any kind of um, demyelinating issue, MS, you want to stay completely away from the TNF blockers. So that's, that's problematic. And then another biggie is inflammatory bowel disease. So any kind of ulcerative colitis Crohn's, you want to stay away from the IL-17 blockers. So that's, that's kind of a one, one thing there. Um, those are kind of the biggies. You, hepatitis B re- infection, you don't want to stay away from the TNF blockers as well. Um, but those are twenty three the, IL-23, of
0: the, and the anti, Are the anti-IL-23s and anti-IL-17s okay in hepatitis B?
1: Yes. And so I'm, I'm okay. saying, you know, that's really the, the go-to answer when people, I get all kinds of um, texts and emails <laughs> from all over the country. People ask me, they say, you know, what about in an HIV patient? And I say 23 blocker. What about in a patient with previous cancer? And I say IL-23 blocker. What about, you know, uh, a, a hepatitis patient? And I say 23 blocker. So really 23 blockers to me don't have any of those weird, you know, worrisome patient types that you got to they, avoid.
0: They're the cleanest. Anything about hepatitis C? Um, what about hepatitis C if they have that? And it's not been treated.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, any of the classes would work. So even TNFs because um, g- knocking down inflammation is actually a good thing in hep C patients. So, so there are TNFs you could use.
0: So, Andy, I've learned a lot today, probably more than I have in the last 10 years, probably because my attention span at lectures is, is not because the lectures, but because to me, is not always that great. But um, what about Tick 2 and what about now we have an oral agent that's been approved for plaque psoriasis? So what's, your, what's your feeling about decravacitinib, so Tick 2 um, thoughts about where it fits in? the monitoring differences, it doesn't have the box warnings of other Janus kinase inhibitors. Can you summarize that
1: for me? Yeah, so we've had incredible innovation as I've highlighted in biologics, and we have not had that really in orals. And I'm really excited actually about Um The brand name is Sotictu. Uh, it was just approved by the FDA in September of 2022. Um, this is a new oral option for psoriasis patients. It was studied in moderate to severe disease, so more severe patients. Um, It basically, um, it's a type of JAK inhibitor, but unrelated completely to the other classic JAKs because it doesn't block JAK 1, 2, or 3. And those are the JAKs that we block in AD and alopecia areata and so forth. But tick 2 is is more selective, Jack, and it's associated with aisle twenty-three and aisle twelve signaling. And so some people are saying this is like an oral. Um, eustachinumab or an oral stellara because it's blocking those two key cytokines, IL-12 and IL-23. And it's, um, we're, we're seeing the best efficacy of any oral drug for psoriasis. So if you want to use an oral drug, if your patients want to use an oral drug, this is going to be a great choice. Um, in terms of efficacy, it's coming up in the range of, I would say, in the range of Humira So, it's not as good as our 23 and our 17 blockers, not in that range, but it is much better than Otesla and, you know, in the range of sort of the TNF blockers. So, that's the efficacy. And then safety, it's really looking nothing like the other JAK inhibitors. So, it does not have the boxed warnings, which is nice for dermatology. Um, And really, there's not a whole lot going on in the safety. There's a little tiny bit of reactivation of HSV and varicella zoster virus, but it's a small signal. Um, it's in the 1% range or so. So it's really nothing to worry about too much and really not much with blood test monitoring. So it's turning out to be you know, a new kind of much safer, much more selective JAK inhibitor and a good option if patients want um, a pill.
0: So what monitoring do you do at baseline? I know you had said earlier the blocking the, the IL-12 may relate to the the TB issue. So you test, you do pre, uh, screening,
1: you test for, you do TB testing with Ducravisitinib, correct? That's correct, Jim. I did... Um... I didn't mention that. Thank you for reminding me. Um, yeah, you should check for TB um, beforehand and about once a year like you would with a TNF blocker or with Stellara. But really, there's nothing else in the terms of some people say lipids, but some people say CPK. The signal is really, uh, to me, it's not much of a signal. So yeah, to me, you don't really need to do much in terms of other monitoring
0: our center was involved with those trials and I'm pretty familiar with this drug and the bump in lipids was pretty small and when yeah. you know it, it's not like this major alert signal so so I agree with you on that you know it's interesting and you know we'll get to this another time Andy I, you know, I have another question for you there's so much stuff that's interesting so we're going to bring you back for for a part 2 definitely but I have a question for you because I know at one time, seeing your office on a on a webinar, um, all these classic rock albums in the background. So we, we we definitely definitely have that have that kindred spirit connection in, in that department. Uh, but if you could go back in time, back to yesteryear, you know, college days, is there one of the bands that you wish you would have been able to see that you did not get to see?
1: Yeah, there is. So I was born in 1962, um, but I had older brothers. And so all my older brothers brought all of the 1960s classic rock into our house. And so at an early age, I was become a a Beatles maniac. So I, I, uh, ended up playing guitar, singing in bands and so forth that whole thing you know in my in my youth um if I had to do it over i mean if I could transport myself back i mean going back to the cavern uh sitting there listening to the early beatles and you know hanging out with John Lennon after a, a performance that would be uh that would be incredible so um that would that's kind of my uh my my most favorite thing to imagine.
0: Yeah, I I was a, just a little bit too young when the Beatles came to Shea Stadium, in New York. I was pro- probably the age of uh, one of your brothers, or maybe, you know, I'm sure I was a little bit earlier than you, 1954. But I got to the at Bangladesh concert, so I got to see George and Ringo together. I've seen Paul on his own, George on his own, Ringo on his own, never got to see John. So uh, I, I would we would agree on who we'd want to go back to see. So, <laughs> yeah. Andy, thanks so much. It's tremendous as always. And we're going to follow up with you for a part two, because you want to talk about atopic dermatitis, Janus kinase inhibitors, and really get into what is in your mind on how you select these therapies and what to look out for. Thanks a lot.
1: Great. I look forward to it, Jim. And thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.